This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. I have a question for those of you who work or have worked in the private sector. What do you have to do to qualify for a bonus? Well, according to the Treasury Board Secretariat between 2019 and 2020, federal the federal government administered a total of $171 million in bonuses to executives and public servants, even though their departments only managed to complete less than half of their performance objectives during that time frame. Now, these bonuses were actually paid out in the middle of the pandemic. What do you think of that? The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Franco Terrazano, Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Hi, Franco. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. Okay, well, uh, what did you think when you saw this? Well, I think it's pretty absurd, and I think it's pretty absurd for three main reasons. Uh, Number one, these bonuses went to bureaucrats when departments met less than half of their objectives. Now, I'm pretty sure that if I go a whole year and I meet less than half of my own objective, I'm not going to be shown a big bonus check. I'm going to be shown the door. So it's pretty absurd that you have these, especially executives, getting these bonus payments when the departments fail to meet their own objectives. But number two, remember, this cost is $171 million in bonuses when the government is up to its eyeballs in debt, and it was paid out during a pandemic. Now, who's going to have to pay this money back? Well, it's going to have to come from taxpayers' pockets, many of whom, took pay cuts, lost their job, maybe even lost their business. So that's the second real issue here. And the third issue, happy to dive into it more, but this is really a symptom of a bigger issue in the federal government where we have seen both our government employees but also our politicians really become financially detached from the reality, the financial reality facing taxpayers. Hmm. So uh, do you have any kind of sense of, of how and why this happened? Well, um, right now, how it works is that you have these executives, essentially, that are eligible for two types of bonuses. Uh, One they call at-risk pay, which is kind of a variable amount, depending on how they do. Um, And another type of bonus that they're able to get is what they call performance bonuses. Um, But those bonuses are only supposed to be happening when they surpass expectations. So when you see these numbers where government departments met less than half of their own objectives, I think we should all be kind of scratching our head, wondering how $171 million worth of bonuses was paid out during the pandemic. Uh, Can you explain a little more about what the at-risk bonus is? Uh, You know, when I first read it, I thought, is it because the executives put themselves at risk? Like, what is it exactly? Yeah, that's what I thought, too. But it's not like a hazard pay or anything like that. Essentially, what it is is just a variable amount that an executive bureaucrat can make um, every year. And, and this can make up to 20% of an executive's base salary in at-risk pay. And it actually can make up to 30% um, of their salary for the people who are really at the top, like deputy ministers or heads of agencies. Uh, and again, uh, does it happen because, I don't know, Treasury Board, uh, they weren't all at work and they just kind of rubber stamped it? Or I, I'm just not getting this. Well, that's, that's the real question, right? Why is this still being going through when you have departments that aren't meeting all of their objectives, not even close to all of their objectives? And, and where are the politicians who are supposed to be our representatives uh, to put their foot down? Because it's not just the department bureaucrats that are getting bonuses. We, di- we digged up some freedom of information requests that shows that you have other crown corporations, federal crown corporations, that have also been giving themselves bonuses. Let me give you an example. The Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation is a federal crown corp. Their number one objective, according to their own website, is housing affordability. 
Now, in the last few years, we have seen home prices skyrocket. The average home price increased by about 22% last year. Now, even though we're living through a housing affordability crisis, the CMHC still ended up paying out $48 million in bonuses. So it's not just federal departments where we're seeing big bonus checks going out. We're seeing federal crown corporations do the same thing. And as taxpayers, we need to be wondering, well, who's actually looking after our best interests right now in Ottawa? How is this different from the private sector? I mean, we just heard uh, on uh, our previous segment about uh, executives at long-term care homes that did not do a good job where people died getting big bonuses. Well, look, I I can't speak for every single business. I, I don't know. But what I can tell you from my own experience is that there's no way that I can expect to go to my bosses if I don't meet my objectives and expect uh, a bonus, let alone a pay raise. Now, what we have seen during the pandemic, and the evidence bears this out, is that there was a difference between what happened in the government and what happened in the private sector. And of course, I'm not just talking about executives, but I'm talking about uh, employees more broadly. What we saw in the government is we saw more than 312,000 federal employees, the vast majority of federal employees, received at least one pay raise during the pandemic. Not a single federal government employee received a pay cut. But of course, we all know in the private sector, many people who took a pay cut, who lost their job, who saw their business shut down. And I think one of the big inequities that I've heard talking to people and that we're going to have to address moving forward is, is, is it really fair for both our politicians and our government employees to be getting pay raise after pay raise while taxpayers in the private sector struggle through very hard financial times? Okay. Uh, Franco, what would you like to leave us with on this? Well, I think we need our politicians who are supposed to be our representatives to look into it. There is no way that bonuses should be paid out uh, when departments fail to meet their own objectives and during a pandemic when everyone else is struggling. So we need our federal politicians in Ottawa to get off their butt and to really look into this. Okay. Thank you so much, Franco Terrazano. Thanks for having me on. We are going to take another break. And when we come back, have you filled up lately? You can call us and vent about it. The number is 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740. That's 1-866-740-4740. And we'll be talking about those sky-high gas prices when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Have you filled up lately? I can tell you I paid more than ever getting gas for my small car and it wasn't even empty when I started. Gas station signs in Toronto, Ottawa, London, and Hamilton showed gas prices range from a, to an average of $2.07 a liter in the last couple of days. And it's being predicted that it'll only continue to rise, maybe to around two ten a liter into the Victoria Day long weekend, which is coming right up. So what do you think of the prices? Has it made you rethink any kind of road trip you might have been planning? The number is to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. And now let's go to Dan McTague, president for of Canadians for Affordable Energy. Hi, Dan. Hey, Libby. How are you? Fine. How are you? Uh, I'm fine as long as I'm not driving. Well, exactly. I'm glad I don't drive very far usually. (laughs) So is this just the usual uh, jacket up uh, for the long weekend in the summer? No, this has been coming for a long time, Libby. Um, Last year, I remember doing an interview with... uh, a good friend that I worked with many years ago when I was at Toyota Canada, uh, David Booth from driving.ca, and uh, had pointed out that we'd probably be looking at a potential of $2 a liter the year later. And uh, here we are, uh, that and then some, and a lot of to do with uh, things getting back to normal and uh, not having enough supply. 
we've uh, you and I have talked about this before, but you know, kind of when you, you paint yourself into a corner when you say no more fossil fuels, uh, you uh, you restrict them, you find ways not to finance them, you block pipelines. Um, you know, along comes Vladimir Putin, threatens uh, Europe. Uh, you know, we want to sanction him, uh, but it creates an even worse situation than anything we probably probably could have imagined just a, a year or so ago. So, you know, we're uh, we're dealing with uh, an unusual circumstance in which uh, Canadians have uh, tried to transition away, or at least our government has, and uh, the cost is uh, is becoming pretty apparent. It's not just, of course, gasoline; it's diesel. Diesel's in short supply. There's concerns about shortages throughout much of uh, northwestern, north, northeastern North America. There's concern about, of course, oil itself, 3 million barrels short. Uh, there really isn't a lot of good news here, and it's not just confined to energy. It's also now making its way into pretty much every other aspect of our lives, even for those of us who don't drive, even those of us who believe we can buy an electric car for 100000 uh, bucks, uh, even those of us who have to look at food prices, whether we like it or not. Uh, fooling around with energy has uh, enormous uh, unforeseen and certainly unintended consequences. Okay, I'm going to take a call from Douglas in Port Perry. Hi, Douglas. Hi, how are you, Libby? Fine. I've talked to you before, so I'm, I don't get the bell. Oh, okay. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, listen, I, I'm i I'm on a fixed com- income. I'm 70 years old, right? Yep. And uh, I have a cottage, as you know, on Lake Scugog. I live in Oshawa, and uh, I'm, I'm telling you, I, it, it's just the price of gas is absurd. Just for me to get there and back, and it can't be more than a forty-minute drive. And how much? And it, it, like it's really affecting me. I got I got to go to Toronto tomorrow and visit uh, and take my ninety-eight-year-old mother out for dinner because she never gets out. And uh, like just to go there and back tomorrow is just, uh, outrageous. Right, and believe me, uh, you know the price of that dinner will probably cost more for the well, same reason. Apparently, she got a gift certificate from one of her friends, and she wants to spend it. So I'm, I'm going to spend the day with her and take her out. Well, that she sounds lives in nice. Our own, in a in her own condo, it's ninety eight. Good for her. Nobody can believe it. She's defying the law of gravity. What mm-hmm. she's doing. Well, I'm glad to hear about your mom, Douglas. Sorry it's going to cost you so much in gas. Well, I, but yeah, thanks. but you know what? It's not affecting just me. Everybody out there. And when I get on the 401, it's jammed. Uh, you bet. It certainly is. It's jammed I, from one end to the other. Doesn't matter. I, I have to spend an hour and a half to get from Oshawa to Etobicoke. Well, yeah. Uh, that's that's a whole other problem. Thanks, Douglas, for your call. Uh, the numbers again: four one six three six zero zero seven forty. Toll free one eight six six seven forty four seven forty. We are talking about sky high gas prices. I would like to hear how it's affecting you and your plans either coming right up for the long weekend or generally over the summer, or even uh, whether you're just questioning about driving into town to take a family member to dinner on their birthday. Uh, Dan McTague, how much of this can we attribute to the war in Ukraine? Uh, A little bit, not a lot. Most of it uh, was baked in well before the war began, well before Russia began amassing troops uh, on the Ukrainian border. Uh, we knew that there was going to be a shortage of about 2 million barrels. We knew that uh, we weren't going to get it, be able to get it from OPEC. We knew the United States was producing about a million and a half barrels less than what it did just pre-pandemic. We knew that demand would eventually have to be satisfied, especially uh, as the global economy is trying to play catch-up after two years of lockdowns. So a lot of this, uh, you know, is uh, is uh, is really not related to. You'll hear a lot of politicians say, "Oh, this is a this is a global phenomenon." It would be a global phenomenon if a country like Canada, with the third largest oil reserves in the world, didn't decide to uh, to uh, you know to uh, fold its cards and uh, drop its tent and move away from producing oil and finding ways to stop production of oil, and then worse, Libby. Uh, shutting down pipelines, which the Trudeau government did. Now, by the way, I'm a liberal of 18 years as a member of parliament. So I'm saying this because it was deliberate policy of the Canadian government to shut down the Energies Pipeline, the Northern Gateway Pipeline. And uh, there's a few others that would have made possible that Canadian oil 
could have displaced what Russia is now holding uh, and blackmailing Europe with. And so, uh, you know, this is not a global issue. This is a made-at-home Canadian problem. And worse, Libby, in the ways that people don't really always see it, it's not just fuel prices, as I mentioned earlier. We've also weakened the Canadian dollar. It takes 130 pennies to buy a U.S. dollar. That's adding 30 cents to the price of gasoline. That's why a lot of your callers are calling and saying, hey, last time we saw $110 oil, it was only $1.35 at the, at the gas pumps. They're right. No, no. So 35 cents, 30, 35 cents, we Canadian dollar. Add the taxes since then, the province of Ontario in the uh, McGuinty era, 2010, introduced the 8% uh, sales tax. And then you have the carbon tax, 12.5 cents a litre. So these things do, in fact, uh, add up. Okay, let's hear from Carolyn in Halliburton. Hi, Carolyn. Hi, Libby. Thanks for taking my call. Um, Gas prices and how it's affecting those of us in um, the senior age group, and particularly those of us who live rurally, uh, we retired to our cottage, and so any place we go is minimum of 40, 45 minutes away, and most of it's in an hour or two. So for us, we are looking at cutting back on traveling. We're RVers, and this summer it will mean probably half the trips or less. Um, and when we go grocery shopping, which already is a painful thing, um, we think very seriously about how many stops we can make at other places in order to make the trip a, a viable thing. But it's um, it's scary. And I guess my biggest question, I've been listening to your other callers talk about the whys of it. But at the bottom of it all, I also read about record profits by the oil companies. And how does this compute. To me, profit means after expenses are are paid. So if they can make profits, why are we paying so much more? Okay, you know what? I'm going to let Dan answer that. Carolyn, thanks for your call and take care. Thank you. Yeah, Carolyn uh, makes a very good point. Um, for two years, those same oil companies lost money. Many of them did not do very well, but I'm, I'd be the last person to uh, be a friend of the oil companies. Uh, they're tickled pink when I predict gas prices going up and they tend to lose money that way. But here's the thing. Uh, take away the word oil and put in the word water. And you're in the middle of the Sahara Desert. You have only one well. And that well has to, uh, has to provide water for thousands. Rather than drilling another well uh, so that more could get it, uh, you've decided not only to uh, prevent any more drilling, you're also saying uh, as this thing runs dry, uh, you're going to uh, continue uh, telling people too bad you just have to pay more, and you're going to tax it even higher. So that's what's happened. We could drill more, we could uh, produce more, but uh, we have an environmental climate uh, action, which is basically going too fast, too quickly, and it's hurting not only the global economy. It's hurting Canadians in particular, who ironically could be a solution to the rest of the world. So that's uh, these green policies designed to hurt the oil industry has had the opposite effect. It's actually made the uh, oil industry very profitable by uh, withholding that which they're allowed to do, or that which they used to be allowed to do, but they, they're not allowed to drill anymore. Assuming that th- those policies don't change, and I, I, I don't want to debate them here, yeah, uh, sure. what, you know, gas prices go up in the summer. It's called the summer driving season. Do you see this lasting through the whole summer? And and when do you see a possibility for prices to drop back? Yeah, well, that's what I was worried about back in February, again, long before the invasion uh, in Europe. Uh, you know, I was worried that uh, before summer demand takes off, and it does take off, uh, we would be seeing not only record prices, but, you know, prohibitively high prices that ca- causing many of your all of your listeners here have to rethink, you know, their priorities in terms of where they're, what, how they're going to spend, you know, very limited dollars. I don't think it's going down anytime soon. And uh, to make matters more complicated, uh, the Canadian dollar will continue to remain weak, uh, even if uh, gasoline starts to fall at the end of summer. Uh, you know, we still have to go through hurricane season in the United States. We still have to deal with refineries, with shortages, uh, trying to keep up with the demand, even at these high prices. It's not slowing down Americans and other countries from using more fuel. So I don't see an answer to this. I do, however, think one thing's re- really critical. The federal government uh, and the provinces have to work harder to try to find a rebate to Canadians. I know that because I did it 20 years ago as a member of parliament, I was able to get GST rebates back in the hands of Canadians. Maybe uh, some of your list. Whoops. Are you there, Dan? 
Uh, we will try to get Dan back. Obviously, we're having some problem on, on the line. We've been talking about high gas prices and what you've been going through at the pumps. And of course, there are reverberations. It's not just at the pumps. Uh, the transportation is a big cost in basically everything we buy, starting with food. And if you haven't noticed it at the pump, You've noticed it at the grocery store, and I think we have Dan back. Do we have you back, Dan? Yeah, sorry about that. I guess I'm going to have to get a new service provider. Okay. Well, yeah, just another thing. Uh, do you see any sense that as supply chains start to resolve themselves that uh, we'll see an improvement in the gas price? We could, but you know, making matters more complicated is the fact the federal government has two or three taxes uh, that they're going to increase. The carbon tax will increase by three cents every year, uh, starting next, uh, next April. And of course, a year July. Now, it sounds a long way out. Uh, they introduced the new second carbon tax, the clean fuel standard. That'll be about four cents increase every year. So year on year, seven, eight cents a liter plus HSP. No, there's no real, uh, relief in sight. Long term, uh, it's hard for me to predict more than just a couple of weeks ahead, but, I did get the $2.10 by May 2-4 weekend. Uh, it actually will go up a penny tomorrow to two hundred nine nine, and then likely another penny the following day. Even though oil is falling, gasoline has a, is its own market this time of year, and you could see a situation maybe where gasoline goes high even though oil begins to drop a little bit. Right, but uh, is the high of two ten that you're predicting, is that just for the weekend? Uh, that's just for the weekend. We may even be two eleven by the weekend, but uh, I think the high we're going to see here in Toronto on occasions this summer will be two fifteen to two twenty. Wow! I hope you're wrong about that. I do too. I wish I were. There are days when I really would like to uh, maybe pick lottery numbers or something uh, and and redistribute all these things. But I'll be darn sure to let people know the moment uh, they you know these prices begin to drop. I have that GasWizard.ca site. It tells you two or three days in advance what uh, what the gas prices will be in your city. Okay, well, people, I, I think people already know it's a good idea to fill up before the long weekend. Uh, Dan, anything else you want to leave us with quickly? Uh, just very simply, I think at the end of all of this, uh, you know, by midsummer, things could calm down a little bit, but we're back to the reality. $2 may very well be seen as a bargain going forward. Okay, we hope not. Dan McTague, thanks very much. Oh, I, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Libby. Okay, Uh, that's all the time we have for today. If you couldn't get through on gas prices, well, believe me, we're still going to be talking about it on Free For All Friday, possibly on other days as well. And that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Well, timing is everything, and I am excited to have our panel on the fight back after the big election debate the night before. I was there on location, and what struck me, aside from the fact that no one landed one of those mythic knockout punches on Doug Ford, was that both Andrea Horvath and Ford spent a lot of time attacking the previous little liberal government that was trounced four years ago. Here's a snippet starting with liberal leader Stephen Del Duca. You should be ashamed of yourself. You, sir, have failed this province. Do you want to talk about embarrassment? Yeah, you destroyed this it. province let's, in every area of the matter of the economy. Challenges you left a wreck behind you, listen, and you have to step up and take you know, some responsibility. Listen. And now, the Recovering Politicians Panel. Okay, so I am anxious to hear what the panel makes of it. I'd like to welcome Charles Souza, the former Minister of Finance for Ontario and MPP for Mississauga South. Lisa Raitt, former Deputy Leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. And Howard Hampton, former Leader of the Ontario NDP. So uh, I'm assuming everyone was glued to their sets. Uh, Lisa, let's start with you. How did Doug do? Lisa? I'm here. I'm here, Libby. I just have myself on mute. I'm sorry. I, uh, he, he did it. The premier did exactly what he needed to do. He needed to go out. 
and he needed to be able to roll with the criticisms that were levied against them and punch back against them and just get his message out and, and continuously talk about all the things that the conservative, the progressive conservative party says that they have done for the past four years and, and make the case on why he should be reelected. So, yeah, I think, you know, he accomplished what his team would have set out for him to do. Charles, last week you were saying that you thought Stephen Del Duca had to make himself a little more likable, accessible human. Do you think he did that? Um, you know, they all performed well, but you're right. There was no gotcha, no home runs. And Stephen, you know, this is his opportunity to be introduced, to be seen, to be able to hold his own against um, Doug Ford particularly. Um, I thought he did that. Um, he tried to land a few issues like you're not showing up for work 82% of the time. And, you know, we're not battling Kathleen Wynn's record. I'm calling about what we're doing going forward. Neither one of them seemed to resonate as best as he was hoped. But he stood up and he came across articulately and he was, you know, he, he, he showed himself to be uh, more statesmanlike and more, and more able to defend the, the issues of the country and the province specifically. So I thought that part was well. And what about was did he come across as more relatable? He he kept mentioning his family, and and some people thought that came off kind of forced. Yeah. So listen, we all we all have our own families. We're all fighting for that. But I, I would prefer him just talk about other people's families and others. Right. I mean, Andrew Horvath does it very well. She she brings in some ability to show what's happened with a particular family, and she spoke with somebody. She uses that tactic every time. And that's how she gets her message across. I think Stephen was trying to be a bit more personable in that regard. But, um, yeah, it didn't come across. And he tried it a few times. Um, listen, his strength is his mind, is his ability to deal with complex issues, to make things work. And to communicate that is sometimes difficult. But I think he showed himself to be a bit more conscientious in that regard than Doug Ford. Howard Hampton, how did Andrea Horvath do? Uh, there are uh, people watching who thought that she kind of got lost in the middle. She was attacking Del Duca. Ford was attacking Del Duca, where she kind of um, maybe got her message a bit squished. Well, I, I think uh, you know both Mr. Ford and Mr. Del Duca are, are hoping that voters have a very short memory because they they both have a a record of some sort to deal with. Um, when you have uh, three men and one woman in a debate, uh, it, uh, it can be aggressive, and I thought there was some very, some very heavy aggression last night. I think where Andrea did well is in not talking about herself and not talking about nebulous things, but talking about people and how they've been affected by what's happened, whether it was covid or whether it's the fact that all kinds of people now, after they pay the grocery bill, after they pay the hydro bill, after they pay the gas bill for their car, don't have much left over. And, and uh, the, the, the thought of owning a home is, is something that uh, most people can't do now. And, and, and in fact, paying the rent uh, is a huge issue now. And I thought uh, that's where she did well, and, and because I think she captured what a majority of Ontarians are feeling today. I mean, Mr. Ford wants you to believe that Ontario is now some idyllic place to live, that there was no COVID, that there are no exploding uh, grocery bills and there are no exploding gasoline bills and there are no exploding rents and no exploding cost of housing. That's just not Ontario. And I think uh, people see through that. I thought that's where Andrea did well. But uh, the, the other two opposition leaders were, were talking about those same things. Uh, Lisa Rate, uh, mm-hmm. what did you make of, uh, I mean, my impression was that Mike Schreiner was actually the strongest on the opposition yeah. side. What do you think, Lisa? He, you know what, I, he had a really interesting style where he stared right into the camera. So I thought he was talking to me the whole time. And I thought that was, that was pretty effective. And he was earnest. I would say it would be the word I would use. He was definitely upbeat. I think what this election, though, is boiling down to is Howard is right. People are thinking about gas bills. They're thinking about food bills. And what they're thinking as they go to the polls will be, who's the person that I believe is going to help me out the most? And that's why I think you saw Mr. Del Duca going after Mr. Ford 
on topics such as him being out of touch, him being the premier, because they know that it's going to come down to who people feel understand them the most and have their best interests at heart. And that's the Ford brand, like it or not. That's the Ford brand. He gives out his phone number to everybody, he calls them back kind of thing. And it's, it's interesting to see them recognizing that they got to take him down from there because I think that's a very potent, a potent um, weapon to have in your, in your arsenal on the day of the election. Uh, it was interesting, Charles, that Ford, he mentioned that license plate rebate. I don't know. I couldn't even count the times. And he also said the opposition leaders want to want to want to take that back, uh, which is not true. Uh, but I thought it was interesting that he focused on that. Yeah, it was. I mean, he's a master of misinformation, too. I mean, not only did he talk about assumptions that the other two parties would, you know, uh, cut back on those issues or increase taxes and, you know, the, the normal things that they've done in the past. And I take exception when he talks about firing nurses or losing 300,000 jobs or putting the economy into disarray, when in fact all those things were incorrect, right? The previous government did increase jobs to the net of 1 million over and above the 300,000 that were lost. And that happened during a time when the conservative government was in power federally. Or the economy. We were the ones that actually took steps to help the auto sector at the very start when the conservatives voted against those measures. And firing nurses, well, that was just a play on, on the union because we actually hired more net new nurses over that period of time. But it's hard for Del Duca to defend those issues, right? Because then he's talking uh, about a record as opposed to going what was going forward. So it's very difficult for him to resonate through that. And Doug Ford is good at being a bit more folksy and a bit more personable. Mm-hmm. But he, he does have the crutch. I mean, even today's uh, press conference was all by way of teleprompt. He relies on his notes. He really doesn't know. You can tell he's not really as understanding of the individuals or, or the issues. So he has to be prompted. And Del Duca, you know, tried to bring out this notion of recycled slogans written by others. You know, you failed seniors, you failed students, you don't show up for work. So he was trying to show Ford as being unfit for the job after four years. And to Lisa's point, Ford does still resonate with people because even with the debate with Schreiner, I, I came to like the way he was talking, right? Because he was personable at that mm-hmm. point. Yeah. And, um, mm-hmm. but in fairness to all, I thought everybody held their cool. Like, nobody yeah. got riled. I mean, only Howard Hampton in this call is one that's actually performed in that environment yeah. in a leader's debate. Yeah. And, yeah. and I thought these guys actually did a pretty good job, Schreiner especially, because he's got <laughs> nothing to lose either. The only thing I heard from Schreiner is, please vote me in and, hey, bring in two more people so I can have some friends. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you're obvious, it's obvious that Schreiner's not looking and he... Well, and Doug Ford at the end said, hey, I can work with this guy. Yeah. Um, uh, Doug Ford was the only one who I thought showed some sense of humor. Howard, Mm -hmm. um, Andrea kept making the pitch, don't vote for the liberals. We are as little as 10 seats away from forming government. Do you think that was the right way to go? Well, I think, let's be clear. There's a there's probably sixty to sixty five percent of the province, uh, depending on where you are, that does not want to see the Ford government reelected. And I, I think what Andrea is saying is, look, uh, if you're in that camp and you don't want to see these people reelected, because behind folksy Doug Ford is the person who cuts corporate taxes to the point where they're the lowest in North America and then pleads he has no money for long-term care or no money for health care. In other words, I, you know, I can be very folksy, but behind the screen, I'm doing things that actually hurt you. And I, I think what, uh, what Andrew is trying to say to people uh, is, look, if, if you're really concerned about the real agenda of this government, which is to continue to look after their wealthy friends, it wasn't lost on me that the day of the debate, it was announced that the chief executive officers and the bosses of the private long-term care homes where so many people died, got huge bonuses. And there's something wrong with this picture. So I think what she was trying to say is, look, if you're really concerned about this, and you should be, uh, then you should place your bet with us, with the NDP and Andrea Horvath. Uh, Will that be effective? I think the last two weeks of this election will be all about what is commonly called strategic voting. Where are people going to go who are concerned about a government 
that uh, has at different times denied climate change, has at different times denied global warming, has at different times denied that we need to do anything about that, uh, has at different times cut the minimum wage or stopped a scheduled increase of the minimum wage, which has given the largest and richest corporations in the province almost a free ride. That's that's the reality that's out there, and I think there's 60 to 65% of the people in the province who don't want to go there. Uh, Lisa, this morning, Doug Ford announced uh, an endorsement from another union. Now, they're all construction unions. How significant is that? Uh, I thought uh, the, the one misstep from Andrea Horvath was she kind of lobbed that one to him, if you know what I mean, but when when she brought it up. But how significant is that? And do workers these days actually uh, vote according to their union leadership endorsements? Well, um, we don't know whether or not people vote in accordance with their what their leadership says they should do. Um, However, that being said, uh, yeah, you would want to have these endorsements. I would have, anybody on this panel today would love to have those endorsements because it's just another ticking of the box of a group of people who think that this government has done a good enough job that they deserve to have another chance to form government again. So that to me is, I think it's impressive that they, they do keep coming out with, with these announcements of endorsements. And, you know, a, a federal conservative would give their IP for one of these kinds of endorsements without a question. So these are things that show that you're not a scary conservative party, that workers are are behind you or with you, and they recognize that the, the focus of the government or what they say their focus is going to be is going to be on creating jobs and creating prosperity, which is what binds us all together at the end of the day. Well, it's it's interesting. I mean, one area where I think Doug Ford has to get credit is in cooperating with other levels of government. And he seems uh, pretty masterful, actually, because when you look at most of the things he says he's doing, it has to do with building infrastructure, and most of the money for that comes from other levels of government, Charles. Yeah, he has to cooperate, and uh, he did initially. I mean, obviously, he was picking fights with the Trudeau government over carbon tax when he didn't need to. We had $2.5 billion in cap-and-trade funding coming our way every year, and that was a... Uh, a carbon pricing system in place that didn't require us to do anything more. Um, but he preferred to go after Trudeau to show the distinction. But then he realizes, you know, he's probably his best friend because when Trudeau's in power, if people don't like him, they'll go conservative. And that's a case when Trudeau was running as well. They didn't really like Ford, and Trudeau got a bit of a pickup in Ontario as a result of that. So there's a mutual dislike and love as a result. But one thing that uh, Ford did do yesterday was he really did touch more upon the economy and this whole notion of cooperation with other levels of government for stimulating investment. Of course, as we do that, we're also stimulating growth in the economy, and that's the part that Ford was trying to get at. And I thought he was better at that than the other two, although Stephen Del Duke and so forth and others have recognized the importance of stimulus to the economy, but people's minds right now are being around affordability and can they survive the circumstances before them and that's why i think most of that focus was held on on those issues yeah and so ford has got a couple of unions who are very much directed by investments made by government on highways and on hospitals and on buildings and certainly they're going to support a government that supports them in that regard Howard, what what do you make of that, the uh, support of the construction unions for the conservatives? And also, um, it, it seems to me that the one issue where people who are opposed to it might vote based on that is, is the highway. So um, how do you kind of square that circle where construction unions are obviously in favor but uh, it might be the one that could become a ballot question for people who really care about it. Well, first of all, I, I'm, this is not news. This is not new stuff for construction unions. I, I, I remember in the 90s and in the early 2000s, if the conservative government of the day uh, said, well, we're going to spend some money on infrastructure, construction unions would say, well, we'll vote for you. And if liberal governments said we're going to spend some money on infrastructure, 
then construction unions would say, we will vote for you. Uh, that, that's, that, that's the nature of, of those unions. Uh, they want to see more construction. Uh, they want to uh, see government spend money on those things, as opposed to, say, spending money on education services or health services or municipal services, uh, which in, in may not necessarily mean construction, uh, but may mean that uh, the patients actually see a nurse when they need one. Uh, the communities who don't have doctors now will have them. And I, that's, you know, part of the voting equations. But I'm not surprised that they would say that. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, I, 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 I would just say this. Don't be so focused just on the issues within the greater Toronto area. There's, there's much more happening here. Now, I've, I've been active in this election. I've been actually uh, campaigning in three different ridings. And, and these are ridings where uh, the highways... <laughs> Uh, are uh, not in a great state. And so the issue there is, you know, why is the government going to spend mega billions of dollars on another four-lane highway in the greater Toronto area when we have a highway that is currently washed out and where three or four communities are now isolated because the highway is washed out? So, uh, you know, I, I realize, you know, folks think this election will necessarily be decided within Toronto and the GTA. But some of the things Mr. Ford is talking about don't go well in the rest of the province where basic services are missing or where services have been cut back or where the highway is no longer passable because it's washed out. So there's a different dynamic here compared to wherever you are in the province. And and, uh, if this election isn't decided within Toronto and the GTA, it'll have some very interesting dynamics. Uh, Charles, will it be decided in Toronto and the GTA? And are you uh, working for any of uh, li- the Liberal candidates? Yeah, I'm very much involved with some candidates in the 905 area, certainly in my own riding, riding where I represented. And it's in play. And it's going to be, uh, you know, I mean, all indications have Ford winning um, uh, the, the contest. Will he get a majority or a minority? And can we do better? to have him in opposition as opposed to be in leadership. But, you know, obviously the polling shows what it shows. And uh, I get Howard's point. There's a, bigger, there's a bigger province than the GTA. But so much of um, the concentration of votes are now in this, in the 905-416 and the new, uh, you know, the greater area. So a lot of them are paying attention to it because they're swing votes. The 905s are swing votes. We lost. They were all liberals, and they all became conservatives in the last go-around because of the surge of the NDP in most part. So to that point, will they be able to curb that activity, and, and will Stephen be able to get those back? That's the intent. Okay. I'm going to take a call from Victor in Etobicoke. Victor, hi. How are you? Victor? Okay. Okay, sorry, Victor, your line is very bad. Uh, Lisa, have you been yeah. active, and do you think it'll be uh, decided here in our area, or uh, is uh, ha- what Howard was saying that things are very different in other parts? Well, I, I'm not going to doubt that things are different in other parts of the province, because that is true. The urban, suburban, ex-urban, and then rural are all very, very different from one another in terms of the issues facing them. Uh, I am involved in my local race, Parm Gill. Happy birthday, Parm Gill, today, by the way. He is the local um, candidate for the Progressive Conservative Party. He, is the, he was a minister uh, in the Doug Ford cabinet as well. And I did the passive things, put up a sign, made the donation. Hopefully I'll get out and knock on some doors and see what's going on. But on a non, on a nonpartisan comment though, Libby, I want to let you know what I'm hearing from folks who are going door knocking is that as opposed to in the federal election, people are opening their doors and they want to talk about what's going on. And that's very different from the way it was back in September when nobody really wanted to open their door to a door knocker and you really couldn't get a sense of what's going on. So there's an engagement. Is that an engagement to turf the government? Don't know. But certainly, I'm, I'm actually, from a democracy point of view, I'm pretty happy to hear that people are once again talking about issues that matter to them. Hmm. Uh, I'm going to take a couple of calls now. Uh, we've got Victor in Etobicoke. Hello, Victor. How are you doing? 
fine. Go ahead. You're on the air. Yeah, I'm thinking about 413 Highway. See, I, 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 we work in the construction. Right. I don't. I don't know why we're wasting our time. You know, Doug Ford's going to win anyways. Uh, because of this construction, he, he's got money put in, money to to, to to at least ten years of work. Hey, I'd rather go for work. I got ten. I, I'm 54 years old. Ten years for retirement. I got GFL. All 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 the construction companies going to be voting for him. And hey, job is better than anything. Job is better than anything, Libby. Okay. If we can get this 413, Doug's in. Okay. I don't know why we're wasting our time. Just give him the vote, and let's get on with this construction. Okay, Victor, we hear you. Let's go to Pat in Toronto. Hi, Pat. Hi, Libby. The, the real question in my mind is who do we trust? Um, you know, I mean, we've been sent back our our money for license plates, et cetera. And I, I don't think most of us are that naive to realize that this is just a bit of a game going on. My big concern is with regard to the environment. I'm also very concerned with what paybacks have come back to the Conservatives with regard to Highway 413. And the last one is my big concern is with the municipal zoning orders, which totally violate the normal democratic process. I'm going to vote green um, because I think that's where we really should be spending our time. That is what matters, not highways. We have to find a way to save this planet. Okay, Pat. Thanks for that. Okay. Um we have a few minutes left, and Lisa Wright, a, an internal PC poll was leaked, and oh. it made my eyes pop just because it was so optimistic. It, it, it said <laughs> that the, the PCs could win between 84 and 94 seats. Um, throughout, we've been hearing that uh, maybe the Liberals will get into second place, but it showed the Liberals making maybe 10 seats and Horvath in the, in the 20s. I mean, uh, it just, uh, I don't know, what did you make of it? Yeah, well, you know what? Uh, internal polls are not often leaked when they're bad, are they? <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Good point. Definitely one they want out there. Um, well, it's in the hands of the voter. The The concept of putting out a leaked poll like this is, quite frankly, is to try to convince other voters out there that if they may be kind of feeling about voting for the Ford government, that lots of others are voting that way. Or conversely, we better make sure that our guy or girl is going to be uh, going to be a conservative MPP because it looks like that's the way the government's going to go. So to the point of vote, of um, determining strategic voting, this is the corollary to it. So you may want to talk about strategic voting. This is what you put out in order to get the person thinking, oh, I think I want to be with the government this time because it's always good to be with the government. Uh, but your callers, by the way, I thought were were the best cases of what people are thinking about in this election. So Victor talked about jobs and security, and that's why they should vote in a progressive conservative government. And I forget it. I didn't get the name. Uh, I'm sorry about that. But the gentleman uh, who said that he was going to vote green, um, it's about trust. It's about the environment. And I think those are the two types of voters that are out there. And, and it was a really good encapsulation of what people are hearing at the doors. Charles, well, thank you, Lisa, because that was a really good explanation of that poll. Uh, do you believe that internal poll, Charles? Well, I, I you know, it inspires confidence and sort of, sort of momentum that they're trying to promote for the party. But obviously there is, uh, all polls are indicating uh, that Doug Ford is having the upper hand. But it is about trust. It is about emotion. And Pat also spoke about MZOs and intervention by government. Uh, beyond the municipal level. And, you know, we have to be sensitive about the individuals, the people that reside in these communities, and, you know, the quality of life, you know, the, the climate, the, the, the highway system was presented previously and it was taken off the shelf because of its impact on the climate. And all those individuals that were part of those discussions have since been removed. And in the end, I mean, is Doug, Doug Ford has a personal charisma about him but he also, by his own admission, recognizes he made a lot of mistakes. And there are people's livelihoods at stake. And that was the case during COVID. That's the case with students right now. It's the case with seniors. 
And yeah, you can say what you want, but you have to help be held to that record. And uh, I think that's partly why he's standing down, not making a lot of noise, recognizing he's got he's still ahead. And uh, it's up to Del Duca and Andrea and Schreiner to help hold them to account. And I think Stephen is seen as the individual that can be the official opposition to do so and be positioned to take over uh, in, the, in the next go around. Uh, okay, uh, we're pretty well out of time for this segment. People who are holding uh, will have lots of opportunity to talk about the election and who you're voting for. And Howard Hampton, last 20 seconds to you. What does Horvath have to do now? I think she uh, has to continue to do what she's been doing, to point out that there is uh, a different reality for Ontario, that you don't have to live in a province where all kinds of people can't afford to rent, uh, can't afford to pay the grocery bill, uh, are, can't, can't afford, frankly, to ever hope to own a home, uh, that you don't have to live in a province uh, where uh, when you're, you are hit by a sudden illness, thousands of people die. And by the way, the CEOs of the private nursing homes where they died got a bonus while that was happening. This is a very wrong picture, and we don't have to live this way. Okay. Thank you so much to our Recovering Politicians panel. We will be talking again soon. And people, we are going to have a TV special on our sister station on the look ahead to the election that will be coming up in the days ahead. So stay tuned. And thank you so much, Howard Hampton, Lisa Rate, and Charles Souza. Good afternoon, everyone. Okay. Good talking to you guys. Bye. Bye. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, federal public servants making big bonuses, even though they failed to meet performance goals. We'll get into that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.